Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Welcome back, everybody. We are continuing through our series, Binge the Bible. And although we didn't have a Sunday morning sermon from our reading in the book of Deuteronomy. We are spending some time on a midweek podcast to deep dive into the book in your reading. I do want to say at the outset, if you haven't read the book of Deuteronomy and you're behind, which some unnamed people in the Jarvis household are in fact behind, I have advised them to put a pin in Deuteronomy and jump into Joshua, which is very easy reading, so they're able to follow with the sermon series and then come back to Deuteronomy. So if that's you, you have official permission to skip Deuteronomy and go back to it at your leisure and to move forward with us for Joshua for this coming Sunday. Uh, But before we get into Deuteronomy, we have special guests with us today who are going to talk a little bit about a missional opportunity. And so today I'm not only joined by our worship and tech director, Bill Mayer. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. But we're also joined by Jonathan and Tina Nicholas, who are mission partners of ours. Would you guys introduce yourselves and tell our listening audience a little bit about who you are, and what you have been a part of, and what you're currently working on. Yeah, so my name is uh, Jonathan Nicholas, and my wife, Tina, is here. Hello. (laughs) And we work uh, with a ministry called United for the Least, and we've been doing that for about 13 years now. Uh, We primarily work in closed countries around Central Asia and the Middle East. Um, And for the least is because we go to least reached places and bring the gospel. Uh, We also smuggle Bibles uh, into quite a few different places. Which is awesome. So that we can provide access to the gospel and help to end Bible poverty uh, around the world. And we just really believe that everyone has a right to God's word. so yeah, and, and the other thing that we do is we we work with uh, the least of these, so people that are um, primarily believers in the underground church who are heavily persecuted in closed countries, and we've been doing that uh, especially in Afghanistan and Tajikistan over the last couple years um, since the the Taliban took over the country there. Uh, we've helped about 200 people come out of the country um, and go into uh, uh different locations around the world. Um, a few here in the United States, lots in uh, Europe and, um, and then Pakistan, some, some there as well. Uh, but, but yeah, so our heart is really to, uh, just relieve the suffering, um, of a lot of these people that we've worked with, uh, that we know personally and also have met, uh, through some of these crises and, um, and yeah, we'll continue to do that around the world. Um, so, uh, right now we have we have families uh, that we're helping get out of the country. Um, some of them are for different situations, not necessarily just Afghanistan, but also Tajikistan, uh, where they are experiencing the effects of the Ukraine-Russian war. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of them, because they are Tajik citizens and also Russian citizens that live in Tajikistan, they are being required uh, by the government there to either go and fight, basically go and die, or be put in prison. And so we've been helping people uh, come out of that country and try to find refuge in uh, place, other places, including the United States. Which kind of brings us to our current missional need. And so what, I do want to talk a little bit uh, specifics about how our Christchurch family could potentially sponsor a partner to help uh, with the, the movement of a particular family. But before we talk about those details, 
um, for our listening audience who are geographically challenged, some of them. When you say Central Asia, you are talking about a lot of the countries that end in Stan. That's right. And you guys did live in Afghanistan for a number of years. Tell us about when that was and what that was like. Yeah, in 2010, uh, we moved our family. So my wife and I and our our two children at the time, uh, we moved. God called us to to kind of sell everything and move over to Afghanistan uh, as missionaries. And so... So yeah, we did that. We sold everything, not really understanding what that would look like or what that meant, but just kind of with the willing heart of God, yeah, whatever you say, we're happy to do it. And uh, so we did. We moved our family in 2010 to northern Afghanistan, uh, right on the border of Tajikistan. So if you don't know, Tajikistan is directly bordering Afghanistan right to the north. And um, and so the, the Tajik people and the Iranian people and the Afghan people, they are all Persians. So the ancient Persians, they... They kind of split up along those border lines, but they are all the same people group. Um, and for yeah, for those who don't know, Central Asia includes all of the stands, and uh, a lot of people think of Afghanistan as the Middle East, but it's not quite there yet. It's a, it's included in Central Asia, so that's helpful. And Tina, would you tell everybody? Uh, you shared a little bit of the story with Tiffany and I uh, yeah. several months ago, but yeah. just what it was like for you leaving the first world. Yeah. And arriving in Afghanistan yeah. and kind of the, the culture shock of that, just to give everybody kind of an idea of where you've been and what it's been like for you guys. Sure. So um, when God called us, we were living in our dream house on five acres in Colorado Springs. And so it was such a dramatic change for me. Um, and I just remember uh, when we first arrived, uh, just arriving into this, um, it took us like eight hours to get up to this mud house that we were living in. And, uh, it was just a mud house and, and the roof would leak with water and rats were running overhead. And I just remember that first night of just getting in there and Jonathan was helping running teams and people. And I I couldn't even, um, take the kids to the bathroom because I couldn't find the flashlight and there was no electricity. And I just remember breaking down, crying the very first time being like, I can't do this. Like, I can't do this. This is too hard. And I just remember crying to Jonathan and he was just so gracious. And, um, and the Lord just gave me grace in that after that period of time, then it, it did get easier. Um, and it, and we just, yeah, we really enjoyed our time there. So that's awesome. And and Amy and Christian would have been yeah, Christian was four, four and Amy old. was nine. Wow. Yeah, so little ones, um, and, and like we were way up in the mountains, so like it was cold, and you're surrounded by mountain lions, and our door didn't shut for our mud house, <laughs> so it was like cracked open, and you'd go to the bathroom in this little outhouse hole in the ground, and so, I mean, it was quite an experience, but um, yeah, it was something that we would just never trade. It was just the best times of our life, so. That's amazing. Since, yeah. since hearing you tell that story, I have stopped telling my worst motel stories. Yeah. So <laughs> right. they just, they're just pale in comparison at this point. So the, the old, your older two uh, kind of grew up there in their childhood years. We first intersected in 2016. That's yeah. right. And you guys were had left there or back here. Was that temporary or was that kind of the shift? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we uh, at the time we were just, I think we were just traveling through. Oh, we were training and we were also just kind of preparing for the next steps and then heading back overseas. So, yeah. Okay. Yep. And so from a distance, having just that one interaction and because of mutual friends, uh, we've been able to partner with you guys on a couple little projects. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, but now you guys are located in Port Orange. Yes. So this is new base of operations. Yes. And so we're officially missional partners. Yes. Um, but we're also like asking our congregation to help out with some of the stuff that's happening right now, yes. which brings us to uh, Ozad and his family. Yes. So will you give the, that backstory? Yep. 
So yeah, I met uh, the family. The family that we're helping right now, or one of the families right now, is uh, Ozad and his wife Zarina, and they have four little girls, uh, eleven years old all the way down to two years old, and uh, just the sweetest family ever. Um, I, we met in Tajikistan in two thousand eleven, and came really good friends. Um, at the time, you know, he was, he was kind of helping, uh, he, he does like little underground house churches. And so he kind of pastors those and, um, and we hit it off right away and, and, and became really good friends. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, he even, we did ministry trips into Afghanistan together, um, in prison together. I mean, this guy, this guy has been through the ringer with me and, uh, and just and an amazing ministry guy. prison is different than college prison. Yes. By the way, it's very so different. <laughs> a lot of us have friends we've been in jail yes. with, but uh. <laughs> so, so just a great guy. Um, but I, I got the call from him a few months back, like, Hey, I need to get out of here. Um, they're asking me to come, uh, join the war. And he's like, it's, it's basically going to be probably death for me and, and then leaving my family behind. And so, so we, we started to look at options for them right away. Like what could we do? Um, and one of the ways that we could get them out is through, uh, Mexico so they can get, uh, because he's a Russian citizen, a dual citizen with, with Russia. Um, he can get into Mexico for six months, basically, uh, they'll give a visa, no problem. But then we have to get him to the border uh, where he can claim a political refugee asylum. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's where at, they're at right now. They're actually in Mexico City and uh, just kind of they've been they've been trying to use all the official channels to get an appointment at the border. That's been uh, kind of a no go. Like everybody's trying that right now and there's just no capacity. Um, and so the plan is sometime probably next week, I'll fly down there, drive a car across into Tijuana pick them up and then drive them to the border where they can claim asylum, uh, there with the border guards. And then from what we understand, the process works fairly quickly, uh, between a few hours and a couple days and they will let them across the border and then where they'll actually start working on their case, uh, to stay in the United States. So what that means for them is that they, they'll, they'll basically, they've come with one suitcase basically. And that's, that's all their possessions in the world right now. Wow. Um, and they have four children, four, four little four girls. <laughs> wow. Yep. And so, and so they'll have nothing, uh, when they come, uh, they, they're going to need, you know, to completely reset up their lives here. Um, and we've done this with a few other families in the past and it's, it's always a difficult transition, but the church has always been there to help, uh, to kind of lift those guys up and just get them through this transition time. Mm -hmm. And so what they, re what they're going to need right now is they're going to need housing, uh, yep. primarily. So we've been looking for housing for them, had a really hard time so far, um, but if there's anybody in the church here that, that has something available for them to stay in, that would be great. And then they're also going to need a vehicle right away just because public transportation in the U.S. is not the greatest. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so those are their primary big needs. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're going to need everything, basically clothing, uh, furniture, you know, every, everything. But those are the two really big needs right now. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So that that's what we're going to kind of put out there. Mm -hmm. um, specifically, they're looking for like a, like a minimally a two-bedroom, one-bathroom place apartment single family home yep um yeah. or if there's a, a family that can temporarily house them with a bigger house than they need that have has room and doesn't mind guests yep. that's an option as well yeah. so we do need an immediate place for them to land yes and then something that's a little bit more longer term yep and ozad and his wife they ozad speaks great english and his wife speaks broken english but uh yeah just the kindest kindest yeah. people you'll ever meet so yeah and we, I mean, these are dear friends. So we actually stood up in their wedding, mm -hmm. 
years and years and years ago in Tajikistan. And so it's been amazing just seeing them walk with the Lord. They're very strong believers. Um, and just watch them as they've had every one of their little girls and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So we're, I mean, we're really... That's exciting to have We're them very here. excited. Yeah. Yep. And they, and now Ozad is a a pastor, but a bivocational pastor, right? He's, so he's a mechanic. Yes. So he had, he had a, a mechanic shop and most pastors, just so people know, uh, in, in other countries around the world, especially third world countries, most pastors also have to have some sort of job to support themselves. There's just no way to financially do it, um, any other way. And so, yeah, so he had a mechanic shop that he started actually, and, uh, kind of had to just close that down and give it up. So, so that his wife is a doctor and his wife's a doctor. Yep. And she's gone through yeah years of training. Now that won't actually transfer to the United States because the standards are different. But right. she would love to even go get her nursing degree just to start. And in, uh, in our medical field, yep, yeah, okay. mm-hmm. that's great. Yep. Okay. But yeah, but having said that, I mean he's 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 the type of guy that he'll hit the ground running pretty quick and and even just go out and get any kind of work he can right away. And yeah. So so I don't imagine they're going to have a, a great need for a long period of time, but just yeah. just a few months at least, this, yeah. this transition. So specifically, it, uh, we're looking for housing. So if anybody has even temporary housing or has something that could potentially be long-term and want to reach out to us, yep. um, and that doesn't have to be necessarily only donated, that could be something that, That's right. if it's available and we have a connection, That's it's right. just hard to find anything That's right. right now. So if we have something that ends up having rent attached to it or whatever, that's, that's a need. Somebody has a vehicle, so we'll need at least a six-passenger vehicle, mm-hmm. um, and we can, if that's something that someone wants to buy for them, like yep. a used car, or if somebody has something that they're not using, uh, even again if it's temporary. Yep. Um, and then if if um, someone's looking for a mechanic for hire, or if it has like a business where um, Ozad could work for them or whatever, so employment is a possibility. Yep. And then. I'm sure there's going to be some people that want to take those girls to Target and get them some <laughs> new clothes. So um, a little shopping right. trip would be there. And then, uh, you awesome. know, if you yep. can't do any of those things, but you still want to be generous, you're welcome to make a donation on their behalf. And, and we'll start to um, add that together and kind of position ourselves to help them when they when they get here. Yep. Now, they've already spent a ton of money to a get ton of money. Yep. At, from Tajikistan to, through Dubai to Mexico City, where they're living temporarily. That's and right. they still have to make their border crossing and then... Yes. The trip here. So, yep. So it'll be, yeah. I mean, even just the travel and, uh, hotels part of that, it's going to be, you know, in the next, we, we paid for, uh, an Airbnb where they're at in Mexico city right now that goes till the 18th. And then, uh, my plan is probably summer right after that to go down and, and make a trip to San Diego, rent a vehicle, drive it across, uh, and pick them up at the airport in Tijuana. So they'll fly from Mexico city to, so their next move is out of the Airbnb and then fly from Mexico city to Tijuana. Tijuana. Yep. And hopefully you're there in a rental and car. And then I'll, I'm there in a rental car. <laughs> <laughs> and because it is a legal way for you as an American with a rental yes. car being there legitimately That's right. to get them, bring them to the border. Yes. And at that point, they're, they get their VIP pass for that interview that they've That's been right. trying to get yeah. in the regular system. Yeah. And from what I understand, um, I'll be questioned quite a bit because they want to make sure I'm not someone that's getting paid for this, right. that type of thing. Right. But uh, it's a it's the legal way for them to do it. And they want to do everything completely legally. Yep. Um, but yeah, if they try to approach the border on their own, they will 100% get picked up by the Mexican police where they they grab yeah. money from them and everything. It's just not a good situation. So they need an American to actually take them to the border. Right. So, yeah. And I, we cover your prayers because yes. like they're going to need it. And um, just for the favor of the Lord, for just open doors for them, just yeah. that it would be a quick process and that yeah. everything would go smoothly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to get them here and have everybody meet them. Yeah, it'll be fun. Yeah, we are yeah. too for sure. Wait, yeah. what a what a big deal! They're coming to Port Orange. Yeah, and that's you guys right. are here. And <laughs> that's right. 
That's awesome. We're really yep. excited to see what uh, what the Lord has in store for them in this yes. next season. Yes, and we have another Afghan family that's planning to move here as well. So that's that's in process. And so. the, is this the family that had moved to Colorado? They were in Colorado, and so I've been talking to them even today that they're they're ready to make the move out here. Um, but yeah, so so we'll probably be looking at in the next sometime this summer, perhaps. Okay, try and get them out here. So well, we'll we'll be waiting for you guys when we know what the need is there too. Yep. So. Yep. Great. Great. So if uh, if you are listening to the podcast and you want to be helpful, you can reach out to us, uh, office at joinwithjesus.org, and uh, let Missy know what you'd like to help out with. Um, if And we'll, we'll just route all the communications through the church and just forward everything to you guys. Okay. And Or you can call 386-226-0052, and uh, we'll continue to, to pray and can't wait to see how the Lord provides. Great. Thank, Thank you guys you so, so much. much. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm really excited that you guys get to hang out with us yes. for our conversation in Deuteronomy. All right. <laughs> so uh, let's go ahead and um, shift gears. And um, so if you have your um, if you have your Bible on your phone or whatever you have, I uh, left. Tiffany's writing a sermon for tomorrow night. Yeah, we're recording this on Valentine's Day. So hope you guys had a good Valentine's Day yesterday. If you're listening to this on Wednesday or anytime future but um it's valentine's day and tomorrow she is speaking to the ladies so we're sharing a computer at the moment okay so i am here with actual printed notes which is different um but we're going to jump into uh, deuteronomy uh, for our deep dive and i do have some specific questions that we're going to get into but before we get into the specific questions that i got out of um our read through deuteronomy um, i wanted to kind of give like an overview of what deuteronomy is so the name deuteronomy uh, is the greek name transliterated and it means second law deuteronomic is what it be law so deuteronomy second law and deuteronomy for a lot of people i was getting feedback was a hard book to read through so part of the reason it's hard is it's long um it is several speeches from moses with a center section that is a lot of ordinance a lot of law expansion of law case law situations that are very very different from our day-to-day life and so they can be very difficult for us to understand the meaning of without slowing down and really trying to get to the principle behind the rule. Um, so this is, a, this is a kind of a, a difficult book. Um, but it is super, super, super important. In fact, Deuteronomy functions in the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, as a retelling of everything that's taken place. In fact, you can get most of the previous four books out of the retelling of what's already taken place in Cliff Notes form in Deuteronomy. It's also really important for believers of every generation because as you as you understand the story as it's played out from numbers in the wilderness and the, re- the rebellion of God's people and the judgment of this first ge- wilderness generation dying in the desert. So Moses is now, uh, before he, you know, he sends the Israelites into the promised land under the leadership of Joshua and he dies, he is speaking to this next generation. And so he is, um, you'll, and you'll notice this reading the first like 10 or 11 chapters, in his speeches, he's speaking as though Israel is one nation, and ha- there's all this continuity in his terminology with who he's speaking to. It's like he's speaking to the same people who left Egypt, but those they weren't the same people. They're the next generation, the children of those people. But he's also speaking about the future, and he's also making this an individual call, a real uh, passionate plea to listen to God's word, to love God with all your heart, and then to to be faithful to obey the things that he's calling you to and to pass that information on to the next generation. And so these are deeply moving uh, series of sermons, speeches from, from Moses here. Mm-hmm. But the, 
the Jewish people have always in every generation read and received Deuteronomy as an individual call to that person and to that generation. And the New Testament writers do the exact same thing. When you see the way Deuteronomy is quoted in the New Testament and the Old Testament, all of the additional scripture contributors are, are reading it with the sense of this is God's word to me and this is God's word to us. And so the prophets are calling Israel to repentance and return and they're appealing to Deuteronomy both to the blessings and to the curses and to the disposition of God to be faithful to his covenant. Mm-hmm. And so Deuteronomy is quoted so frequently throughout the Old and the New Testament that it really emerges as of utmost importance. And so we started the podcast by giving everybody the green light to put a pin in it and keep moving so that they can keep up. But this is a book you're going to want to spend some time in. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, Jesus spent some time in this book. If 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 uh, if you've read the Matthew chapter four and Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness, of course this is this is an illustrative picture of Jesus representing all of Israel and all of humanity by going into a place of testing, into a wilderness experience where he is for forty days, not for forty years, deprived of sustenance and uh, physically, spiritually dependent upon God. And at mm-hmm. the end of that period, he faces this triple temptation from the enemy. And of course, what does he answer back with to all three of these attempts at temptation, but with quote, direct quotes from these first several chapters of Deuteronomy. And so Jesus himself uh, meditated on Deuteronomy in a way that it formulated his sense of self, his relationship to God, his place in the earth, and his representation of the people of Israel as the Messiah, and ultimately as God's second Adam and perfect man and an object for us to put our faith in. So I just can't overstate how important Deuteronomy is. Mm -hmm. So I don't want you to think that just because it's confusing or difficult or foreign, that it's not worth reading. Mm -hmm. So we're not reading it at the pace we just read it at. It could be like, I don't know what's really going on here. You could feel a little bit more confused than having clarity, but commit yourself to understanding this book. Take it apart in bite-sized chunks. Ask the, the questions that immediately come to your mind and read other contributors who would challenge even the framework that you come to this text with because um, there is a paradigm that's in here that is really revelatory of the nature and character of God, his purposes for his people, and all kinds of forecasting about what you're going to expect God to do in the fulfillment of his promises. And so this is an incredible, incredible book. I <clears throat> I just wanted to say I, I agree 100%. I, I, I think, too, that um, there's a lot of kind of foreshadowing like prophetic foreshadowing um even with what happened there at mount sinai with the israel the the god's people israel like he to him it was like a marriage covenant that he was making there at the mountain with them they don't think i don't think they realize that but he was the way he had them prepare themselves and Mm -hmm. to approach him like the way he he gave them the commands it was like hey this is my covenant with you like i'm getting married to you and immediately Israel's unfaithful, yeah. you know, it's just so, I mean, just so, and what's interesting though, is that God is, is so faithful and he's not going to forget his people. He will never like, he'll keep going, coming back again and again and again, like Hosea, right? Yeah. Like over and over and over again. So I feel like it's such a beautiful picture. Like if you can get over a lot of maybe just all the details like mm-hmm. that are there, maybe because they needed those details. But if you look at the big picture of it, it's just it's a beautiful picture of this wedding covenant and yeah. God, God even wooing them. Right. Like he kind of like struts his, his stuff in front of them. Right. Like, look at me, you know, like kind of like like a man would yeah. before a woman. Right. Like and, and then he's like, OK, and now he woos them and draws them and he's gentle with them. And then yeah. and then he's strong with them. You know, like it's just this, this really beautiful picture of the yeah. of the back and forth of this covenant relationship. You know, there is a. So, 
so. a bit of a spiritual courtship. Yes, yeah, exactly. That you're observing. There. That's right. Yeah, and I mentioned on Sunday in passing that Deuteronomy in part reads like the constitution of the nation of Israel, right? Um, and there are like multiple ways to read Deuteronomy and motifs that flow throughout, but a substantial one that we've seen through the whole Pentateuch at this point and that is in Deuteronomy is this marriage, right? So Genesis begins with, I mean, the high point of the creation narrative is a marriage. All of Genesis chapter two is about a marriage and the progeny, the fruitfulness of the marriage relationship is the, the pinpoint of messianic expectation, the seed of the woman. And so all of the genealogies, all of this expectation of, of Messiah, king, leader, all the, all the prophecies, like all, all of those things are pointing towards who is going to be this deliverer, right? And then there's all this expectation and failure. And so you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the 12 tribes, the brothers and how they treat Joseph. And I mean, everything seems like it's about to fall apart all the time. And God continues to bring it about, but he's building for himself a nation. And so part of the whole constitution where constitution and marriage overlap is God has gone from being faithful to a man and a promise he made to a family and then a nation and then all the nations of the earth. And so we're seeing God kind of fulfilling this um, concentric circle of blessing from this man and his wife, not not the slave woman, not not Hagar, but through Sarah, and then to Isaac, the son of promise, laughter, and then to Jacob, Israel, the nation. And this is kind of like where the people of Israel are gaining their sense of identity and their calling to represent the nature and character of God among the nations of the earth, right? And this is where that the nation of Israel is in this covenant partnership with Yahweh in what is, in the language, a marriage ceremony. That's what this is. And all of the terminology about God's faithfulness and fidelity to Israel and his call to them. And then that's really important to recognize because there's a lot of sexual ethic that's built into the center ordinances in chapters 12 to 26. And that's really challenging for a lot of our readers. Most of the questions that I got were really from trying to interpret and apply the the sexual ethic that is in chapters 20, 20 I guess 22, 23, 24. We're going to look at 22, 28 in particular. And um, because that kind of like is a good illustration of some of the component parts that we need to take away apart the rest of it to understand it. Uh, we'll do that in a few minutes. But um, part of the reason for this, and this is where it's the big disconnect in our society, right? So as Americans in the 21st century, we understand, okay, there's civil government, the legal system, things like justice, leadership. There's, a, I mean, I think it's chapter 24. It's all about the qualifications of leaders and God's future kings and prophets and priests, all these things. Like, we understand the importance of leaders. We understand the importance of laws. We explain to our kids legal system, traffic laws. We are, this is all better for everyone, and we have an agreed-upon way in which the world's going to work, and it provides order and safety and property rights and autonomy. And, like, this is what laws are meant to do. But in, in our modern psyche, less so among traditionally Christian people, but in our modern psyche, that has nothing to do with sexual ethic. Like there's zero sexual ethic that is built into like right now that the only thing that matters is consent. And that's all. That's it. That's it. <laughs> and even that right now is being pushed. Like there's a lot of like, and it's really disturbing, but there's even like a lot of left push towards trying to like, uh, low, like re eliminate an age of, of legality and get into our minds that somehow like minors can consent and how, and that children can have like a, like a sexual desire that there's nothing wrong with that. It's totally 
patently false, but like it shows that there's like almost no sexual ethic built into our legal system. Now it's untrue. Our legal system has a ton of sexual laws, laws about rape and pedophilia and incest and sodomy even still, like there's all kinds of stuff that's built into, but that is being um, blatantly ignored right now in our culture. And there's a big push to just push all sexual ethic out of our legal system. But there is no, there is no legal system in history that has done that. And so we need to kind of recognize um, it, there's been different sexual ethics, but they're always in civil ordinances in every culture. There are sexual ethics that are built into that because humans innately understand that society is built on trust and relationships and fidelity. And that's no more powerfully expressed than in those rela intimate relationships. But we are living in, in an age where that is being just completely blacked out. And that is remarkable. And we need to like recognize the, the water we're swimming in. Sometimes we can't see it. And so it's really important right now, if you're, if you have zero sexual ethic, you don't think there's anything, you can do whatever you want with whoever you want. And the only thing that matters is nobody's getting hurt and everybody's okay with it, which is kind of the going ethic. You're going to read the scriptures and be like, this is terrible. This is awful. Or it's restrictive or it's inconsistent. And so like, we have to step back a little bit and go, okay, what did God intend? And how is that expressed in the laws that are written here? What were the, what were the potentials for exploitation? Who were the actual v potential victims versus villains? And how are these laws built to represent the character and nature of God? And that's really dicey stuff. Yeah. The comment that I was going to say was that, you know, I, I, I think that um, we have to remember that when this was written to them, that they they were coming out of a place of completely pagan, no law yeah. at all. You know what I mean? Like, so God is almost like, hey, you need a complete reset to understand to me what is right and what is wrong. Like, and, and, and even in our society today, right? Like we have, you know, when, when someone's born again and God literally says, I'll write their law, my laws on their hearts. Like when you have a new heart, you have born again heart, right? Like, you know, instinctively from the Holy spirit, this is right, or this is wrong. But back then, like they, they didn't have that even, right. They had, they had nothing. And so God had to go detail by detail over, over like, Hey, this is okay. This is not okay. You know what I mean? Like he's very, very granular on, on just the things that are right and wrong because they had none of that at the time. Right. Like no law at all. So, and so, and so I think a lot of this detail seems just like way over the top to us. That's stuff that seems like, well, that's basic. Of course, that's, that's wrong, you know, but but to them back then, right? Like, like in their society and their culture, like it just, it gets ingrained into like, this is okay. Like who knows what, what things that were going on at the time in their society there in Egypt. Right? right. So, so I think a lot of that stuff had to be completely reset. And so, so a lot of times God does that, right? Like he goes just very, very far to the other side to say, Hey, you need to get completely far away from all the stuff that you, you thought was okay in the past. Yeah. Right? It's yep. not okay to me. Yep. Yep. It's good. Yeah. And, and, and that's part of that revelation of, um, the marriage motif again. Like, I don't know how many of you guys got married to someone that you dated for a very short period of time, was engaged for a short period of time, and you got to know them by living with them. <laughs> right. Like, that's not an atypical kind of historic experience. These days, because of said sexual ethic, right. most couples, you know, kick the tires for seven years and buy a house together and then decide whether they want to live together forever and have a baby or two first, and then they get married after they've been together for 10 years. So regularly hear people who say like, oh, we've been married for eight years, but we've been together for 18. Right. And that would not be abnormal at all in our kind of like modern culture. But the picture here is one of like, okay, now we're in this covenant relationship and you're precious to me and I'm calling you to choose me, but I'm also describing to you what is a brand new way of living. 
And so I'm asking you to go all the way in. And so one of the motifs that I absolutely love about Deuteronomy is it really is all about the heart. Mm -hmm. And you're going to see this come up again and again and again and again. Yeah, and I think one of the um, the things that came up for me reading through again this time is like you get all the case law and like God's, hey, be holy as I'm holy. But you get this new phrase in uh, NASB and ESV that says, so you shall purge the evil from among you. Mm. Like there's this new call to like purge out evil. Don't just exist with it, but get rid of it so that you can be holy. If we go back to the marriage motif, like yep. be, be a holy bride, right. mm-hmm. sit apart, be cleaned, you know, and, which is Jesus's work now. But right. Just like that new that new spin that God put on it, like really spoke of like volumes to me. Yeah. Just like purge the evil, like, and how? But you know, how does God see evil? Yes, is what we got to go back to. Right. Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, God asked them, like Moses said, "Are you okay with these things that God said?" Yes, we will do everything that He has He's asked us. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you made an agreement. Now here's what He's asking of you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, right. Exactly. Yeah. So it was like, okay, mm-hmm. now let me go into some detail on what that looks like. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and of course then, so that purging also has to do with outside influence, right? So God knows that we are influent, we're easily influenced as humans. So the environment we're in tends to normalize us to that environment. And we have the same thing. It's a big part of what we talk about in this podcast week after week after week is there's things that seem normal to us, but they are not okay to God. And so we have to learn what is this outside influence now, praise God that he's not calling us to uh, destroy our neighbor and put them completely to destruction. And <laughs> right. that this is not a physical reality, but there is a spiritual reality in which we've got to recognize where are the influences in our lives that are leading our hearts astray and how do we cut them off? How do we like continue to operate in this world but recognize that we are in a partnership with God where his ethic is our ethic and we are not going to be influenced by those other things? Right. That reminds me of last week we talked about um, the people of the land that were so evil, like heinously evil, that they probably didn't realize that it was bad for them to offer up their firstborns to Molech. That was like probably a normal thing for everybody. And that's what they thought was good because everybody else was doing it. And there's that uh, that one scripture, I don't know where it is, but like God's like, you shall not massively do evil together like all of you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like don't all just go do it because everybody else is doing it. Yeah. So that's just like what reminds me of, of what we talked about last week. Yeah. You know, they thought it was good. Yeah. And that's, I mean, if you look back in human history, every people group that did great evil did so because they thought it was good. Mm-hmm. Nobody did evil thinking it was evil. Right. People do the worst kinds of evil based on an ethic that says it's a good to do. That's right. And so this is what comes back down to, and, and we'll have this conversation in a, in a subsequent podcast coming to a theater near you. Uh, Bill doesn't know about this yet, but I, I want to be able to apply these truths specifically in the political arena. And those are diff- more difficult things to talk about because then they get into like things like policy and like what, what is Christian policy and party partisan politics, those sorts of things. But those are things I think people are interested in and really need help because there's a lot of Christian teaching that leans left and there's a lot of Christian teaching that leans right. But there is ne- But neither of our current political spectrum or environment is innately Christian. And so we need, we need great wisdom to be able to apply those things. But you go back to like Deuteronomy 9 when God's saying, we're going to push these, you are going to be the sword of judgment against the Canaanites because of their evil, not because of your righteousness. You're not going in because you're good. You're going in because they're bad. And I, I am now, the judgment, this Genesis, I'm trying to remember, I think it's 28, the, the, um, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet fulfilled. God's saying, I'm still giving them time. It's not time for them to experience this judgment. And so there's always a little bit of pushback on, from Christian people because the idea of like 
uh, national genocide seems so evil and so incomprehensible. But like God, God regularly utilizes one nation's conquest of another as an act of judgment. And only he's in the position to do that. So people generally don't push back against the Babylonian invasion of Israel. As being wrong. As being wrong. (laughs) But there is this sense in which, who do you think you are to come in and take over this land? And that reveals something more about the way our minds are wired and our uh, ethical system as we're experiencing it from uh, default mode than it does about what God's actually revealing here. Right. And I think it's interesting, too, because when God, you know, God actually said when he when he when he used a nation to judge Israel and then he would actually say, like, look just because you're judging them, don't think my blessings on you, right? right? Because I'm going to judge you too for how harshly you treated them, yeah. right? Yeah. And so there is this sense of justice still, even though there's punishment or yeah. or discipline that God is disciplining his people, right. there's also punishment for people who are over over harsh or, or doing it in a way that maybe they're proud in their hearts about what they're doing. Like God's not saying, hey, I, I have full approval on you because no, they're being disciplined, yeah. but don't think you're okay, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and we see that yeah. in the... In, in the um, the AD 70, right? So Jesus comes into Jerusalem at the Passover weekend of his execution and he weeps over the city as he prophetically sees the destruction of the city, which was God's judgment for the killing of the Messiah, which was God's plan. Right. And yet the people who committed that evil <laughs> right. and the city that or Judas, that, right? Yeah. Brought in. Exactly. Or Judas, right? So we like, see all yeah. these, all this human responsibility, God's sovereign, all these purposes folding together and you see the justice of God being meted out. And all of that, though, is meant to really hyper-focus us on where um, mercy and justice meet, and that's at the cross of Jesus. right? So this is, we go back to Numbers fourteen twenty one, which was one of the sermons where God says, as surely as I live and as my glory will fill the whole earth, this generation is not going to make it, is not going in. And so God's saying, I'm going to be merciful and I'm going to bring judgment at the same exact time. And the defining, the defining characteristic of how I do that is not who's the object of my mercy and grace. It is that I am faithful to what I said I would do, and I am going to bring about my purposes. Right. And so we, this, this really humbles us. Mm-hmm. It really takes us yeah, down. Yeah, and much. I think we have to be careful, right, assuming that we, we understand fully God's intentions or purposes just because we don't like it, right? right? I, I think that's, that's really hard. A lot, a lot of times we don't like to read these scripture verses and just say, well, I reject that. Right. Instead, we have to say, well, look, look, we we aren't God, right. and we don't understand His ways fully. But He is like, if you if you believe He's a hundred percent love yeah. and just yeah. and righteous, then yeah. everything He does is a hundred percent all of those things, right. you know. And so uh, we have to accept them as we work out. Okay, what was His purposes in this? And as we try to understand, I think it's fine to struggle through it, and it is a struggle sometimes. Yeah. But yeah, we have to understand that we are not Him. You know. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and it is a struggle, but it does. It actually does if we allow it. If we if we allow the the text to lead us, instead of us standing in judgment over the text, what it will do is it will bring about tensions that create specific questions that find their resolve in Jesus, and this is what the texts are trying to do. I mean, Moses. The, the latter contributors who kind of like finalize the form of the Pentateuch that we have, all of the prophets, the gospel writers, the New Testament apostles and their writings, all of these are doing the same thing of going, let us show you how this has been shaping towards Jesus. And then what that looks like in him now to expand into the age in which we are. And so we really, it, we will benefit greatly from becoming biblically literate, which is part of the reason why I'm 
challenging our church to go through this in six months. And I hope you do it again. I hope at the end of six months you go, okay, that was helpful, but I'm going to do it one more time and then one more time and then one more time. And then not stop until when you read it, it sings to you. And Deuteronomy will sing. It will sing to you. There will be moments when you're reading Deuteronomy where before you read it and you went, this is so weird. And now you will find tears coming to your eyes because of the beauty of what's being put on display here. And so the, the calls to purge are showing, listen, there is an influence that will lead you away from life and towards death and be vicious to cut it off. Purge it from among you when there's evil. And we're going to see this with, in, um, in Joshua with Achan when he, when he you know, disobeys and God brings that judgment. Like, don't let this stuff in and don't put up with someone who puts this stuff in and don't be led astray to become like them, you know? And so this is what Deuteronomy is kind of forecasting. Now, it's, Deuteronomy does this thing too where because it is this covenant language, you're going to get this um, contractual, it's kind of a prenuptial agreement. And this is where the blessing and curse terminology comes in. Uh, this is hard for us because immediately when we think curse, we tend to think like witchcraft and evil. And then we're like, oh, God's going to curse them? And then Moses is confident that everyone's going to reject God and suffer the curses. And he, he kind of prophesies that, right? Well, not kind of, he does. He prophesies that's what's going to happen. And so you're going, okay, how is God going to curse his people? He knows they're, gonna re- they're going to reject him and suffer these curses. Why doesn't he stop them from doing it in the first place? And part of this is taking us down this trail that we need to back up to the word curse and recognize that in the ancient Near East, when a people group heard this terminology, what they were hearing was a, a contract, a social contract, a nuptial between uh, powers. And so this is, this is the terminology of here's the deal, and it's a sweet deal. This is a really, really, really good deal. Um, but if you break it, I will kill you. You know, like, and this is not abnormal for us in any contracts. You, you buy a house, no one's, no one's going to their closing date with their thumbs up photos with the real estate agent and they're hanging their new keys and they're so excited. And if you read the, what, what you're signing up for, like there are repercussions if you fail to make good on your agreement. But we, we read past that without even thinking about it because our goal, is, our focus is on the good thing that we're walking into. And so like that's what these blessings and curses are. Like if you're going to be in this relationship with me and faithful to me, you get a land, a beautiful land, you get this whole society where there's enough for everybody, and it is just flourishing upon flourishing, generational blessing, divine protection from God. I mean, it's just, it should blow your mind. But what's at the core of it is a right relationship with God at the heart, and that's where Deuteronomy is all about, at the heart. And I love, uh, I want to just read Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9. This is kind of like the heartbeat of uh, the first section, I'd say the first section is probably Deuteronomy 1 to 11, these speeches of Moses, but he gets to Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 9, and this is the Shema. And so Israelites for centuries have repeated the Shema morning and evening. And this is like, this is like where you, this is the, we might as Christians recite the Our Father, like this is, Lord, teach us to pray. And like, this is like uh, paradigmatic of what a Christian life looks like. Well, this is a paradigmatic of what a, a Jewish life looked like for century upon century. Uh, the Shema comes, most most Hebrew names are just the first word of the thing it's referring to. So they don't, this, like we said, numbers is in the wilderness, right? In the beginning. Um, do, the Shema and the word Shema is listen. It's not just hear, though. It is li- listen to obey. So Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. And here we have the double themes of love and listen 
side by side. And if you're in this first section, especially chapters one to 11, they continue to resound and connect, listen and love, listen and love. God is after our heart. And that has to do with how we will take in his word and respond to it in obedience and how we will treasure him in devotion. And so these concepts, um, and, and this is meant to be received deeply and individually and then uh, stewarded into our paternal and maternal relationships. So verses six to nine, and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so God is saying, you got to get my word into your heart and you have to respond and listen with a disposition to obey. And it's got to be something that you treasure. You don't just do it. Um, you don't just do it as a command or as a requirement or as an obligation, but you, you so treasure me and my words that you are devoting yourself to them. And this is very like deep. I mean, talk where it's Valentine's day and this, this is God's heart right here. Like we are, we are hovering over it. And so like, um, you know, we have this conversation with our kids, the difference between hearing and listening, Mm -hmm. you know, when you tell your kids (laughs) to do something and they don't acknowledge that you're speaking and they don't do the thing you told them. And instead they're doing the thing you just told them to stop doing and you shout and we're always trying to not be a shouty house. And I tell my kids whenever I shout, I'm like, I don't want to yell, but you are not listening. And they'll say, I heard you. And like, this is the difference between hearing and listening. The fact that the sound waves from my voice reached your ear and were interpretable is not listening. <laughs> right. That is hearing only. And, and this is, again, the call of God. Do not hear only. I mean, this is what Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what James talks about. Don't be like a person that looks in the mirror and then immediately goes away and forgets what you look like. Do something about what you see. Don't, don't be deceived. We got to be hearers and doers, not hearers only. Jesus said, many will call me Lord, Lord, but you didn't do what I said. And so I think in Protestant Reformation circles, we are so opposed to any vestige of what appears to be some kind of works righteousness or works acceptance that we have so drastically downplayed the central role of obedience in connection to loving God, listening and treasuring his commandments and doing what he says. It's not faith at all. And so we've got to really be careful um, where we don't get into like the theological mire of, of, you know, an argument of justification that pushes us to the point where we become very well acquainted with what God has said, but our lives don't reflect what he's called us to actually be and do. Yeah. And I love how uh, John describes and defines for us in first John five, three, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. So it's like, I mean, most of us are like, oh, I'm, I'm right with God because I come in and I check the box for church. I tithe. I did these things. But like, is that burdensome to you? Right. Like, man, I love you, Lord. And I want to do the things that please you because I love you. And so like, that's like a really rich thing that we're like describing. Like, I want to please you, Lord, and because I love you. Yeah. And so it's just like, you know, I keep his commandments. And that also reminds me of the, the other phrase in um, the Hebrew phrase for obey is to is to walk in his voice. Right. So it's just like walk know. in his voice. Yeah, yeah. It's not a beautiful picture, word picture there. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. And I was thinking too about uh, <clears throat> Moses, you know, um, right after God appeared to him in the burning bush, right? He gives them, he gives them this command like, Hey, here's what I want you to do basically. Right. And mm-hmm. then finally Moses agrees after 
contesting with God for a while. And then, <laughs> and then as he's on his way, God literally comes right after that to kill Moses. Yep. <laughs> it's yes. like, what? Yep. Because his heart was not obedient. Right. You know, he was not doing the, the basics of like, this is what I commanded you to do. Just reluctant. Yeah. Reluctant. Right. So Faithless. it wasn't. Yeah. Yeah. Expecting so things to go very badly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's just such an interesting thing, right? Because he, he didn't have his heart. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like to have your heart is to be willing to do anything that he says and without even understanding, right? Without understanding things that you don't want to do. Let's talk about this. Okay. So, um, you got, feel free to push back on this. This is me. This is me. Um, this is just conjecture, right? That story I've been thinking about again and again and again and again, because what, ha- what stops God from killing Moses is Zipporah circumcising Gershom, right? So, and you're like, where did that come from? Like, I didn't even know she was here. Mm-hmm. She's in the motel. There's blood everywhere. <laughs> like what <laughs> is going on? But here's, here's the picture. Part of the challenge of Deuteronomy is it is all about the heart. And there's this tension between the control we have of our own heart and the failure of our hearts in Deuteronomy. So Moses is saying things like, um, this command is before you today and it's not hard. It's very clear. It's not in heaven that you have to have someone go get it for you. It is not at the bottom of the sea that someone has to go reach it and bring it up. It's right here. It's in your mouth. It's right here. It's not hard for you. Choose life, right? But then he also uses the same idea of circumcision, where he says your heart needs to be circumcised. Some something dead needs to be something needs to be cut off, removed, and then die, in order for your heart to be right. And so we get in in chapter ten. Moses says, "Circumcise your heart." How do you do that? And yet the command is you do it. But then you get to chapter 30, and I think it's verse 6 or 16. I can't remember. I can see it in my brain. God's prophetically speaking that he's going to be the one to circumcise our heart. And that's why Deuteronomy is so central to the prophetic voice throughout the rest of the Bible. These are the themes that Jeremiah and Ezekiel pick up on when they start talking about this move of God that starts to fulfill all of his purposes despite the failing, the failing of Israel and the, the weakness of the remnant. Like, there's always this remnant. There's always this faithful, re- repentance, broken people who will go back. But there's so much calamity, so much loss and exile and, and destruction and hopelessness. And yet God's still keeping the, the wick alive, right? And so when they prophetically speak to this new age and this new era, this new covenant, as Jeremiah 31 talks about, I'm going to make a covenant with you that's not like the covenant made with your fathers in the wilderness, though I was their husband, right? right. Isn't that what it says? Yep. But I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to remove your heart of stone, your hard heart, and I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. What? And then you don't have to say to your neighbor, know the Lord, because everyone will know me. And that's that intimate, that's the sexual term in Hebrew, to know. To to know someone intimately. To know someone, yeah. Yeah, Like you're going to have this intimate experience Mm -hmm. and relationship with them that's that's going to be like, oh, I know the Lord, like me and him are right. Or like this. And Ezekiel, what do you say? I'm going to put my spirit in you. I'm going to actually write my law on your heart. It's not going to be on your forehead. It's not going to be on the back of your hands. It's not going to be on your doorposts. Yep. It's not going to be all around you, but it's going to be on the inside of you. And so this idea of circumcision, and of course the New Testament writers understand that this faith in Jesus now expressed in baptism does this new work where there is all, the old structures and systems, the old wineskins, they don't contain what God's doing now because now we have this, this there's no more Jew and Gentile. 
because this is not the old covenant. There's no more male and female because there's not this distinction of the one who carries the sign in their body, the circumcision, and the women who are now tied to a man bringing about the progeny of expectation of the Messiah. So, so much of what you're going to see in these and these ordinances and laws are reflecting a previous agreement, a way that God was doing something, but the thing he was doing was to show Israel and also humanity that you have to have something happen on the inside of you in order for you to be who God's called you to be. And this becomes both individual and universal. And so it's just mind-blowing when we start thinking about all the ways that this gets expressed in seed form in, in Deuteronomy. And so that whole Moses, God killing Moses... Like, there's a picture there. Right. There's a picture of I'm after you being all in and after your heart. And also, like... And I'm serious about it. I'm serious about <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, and like, there's going to be blood. Mm-hmm. There's going to be blood. And so you, you, we start... I mean, my brain goes crazy to think about all of the... We didn't even get into the theme of the firstborn. Oh. You talk about the redemption of the firstborn and God taking the Levites and the all of the purification for the firstborn and all of the redemption price for the firstborn... You are mine, you are mine, you are mine, again and again and again and again and again. And here we have Moses with his firstborn not circumcised. And God's saying, that's a problem, that's a real yep. problem. And like the, these themes and these stories, they they all fit together to to point to Jesus so clearly. And not just in one way, like a million ways. Like oh, man. every time you turn around, there he is again, there he is again, the whole, there he is again. The whole Old Testament, I mean, it's just full of Jesus, you know, like every... And, and God obviously was was creating this story throughout from the very beginning. From the beginning, very beginning, like everything. I mean, you think of Adam and Eve, right? The the skins that they were covered with immediately, the sacrificial covering. Right. It was probably bloody still when they put them on. You right. know what I mean? Like that that picture of like yeah, yeah it's the blood's going to cover you, the sacrifice is going to cover you. Yeah. I mean, just from the very beginning. God's going to yeah. remove your shame. Yep. By covering That's you right. because of the death of another. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Right there. I mean, That's and. Crazy. and it's just nonstop. And so this is what I want people to like really chew on Deuteronomy. Yeah, it's a beautiful picture when you really understand where, where God is coming from, right? Yep. 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 So let's, um, I don't know how much, I don't even know what time it is. Let's, <laughs> let's take uh, um, just a few minutes and let's look at Deuteronomy 22 and verse 28. So this is under a section in the ESV entitled Various Laws. How exciting on a Thursday morning. <laughs> but when you see how it fits into the story, um, it, it, so this is this is a bunch of different scenarios of um, the loss of virginity. So this is in, starting in verse about 13. These are laws uh, for sexual immorality. And there's various different ones of them. But I've got three people specifically asked me about uh, chapter 22 and verse 28, which says, If a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed, so not engaged, and seizes her and lies with her, and they are found, then the man who lay with her shall give to the father of the young woman fifty shekels of silver, and she shall be his wife, because he has violated her. He may not divorce her all his days. So that's verse 28 and 29. So let's just let's just dive into this a little bit, okay? So there's a number of cultural things that are very different from our uh, experience. So we do not do betrothal. We do not do bride prices. We do not do arranged marriages. So we don't have categories for an unbetrothed virgin and a betrothed virgin. But both of those would have been live categories. Also, like the, the in, during the period of p- the patriarchy, 
the husband, father is head of household and everyone is subordinate to him and he has a covering over them. And so the bride price of, in this instance, 50 shekels would be paid by the pursuing groom for the hand of the daughter. And so there would be, there's some arrangement there. And so uh, there's, these are very foreign characteristics to our common experience. But I want to go back to like, okay, number one, God created marriage in Genesis. He has a distinct purpose for it because it is going to be not only the manner by which society flourishes, it's the foundational uh, institution that produces the most healthy humans as the children of one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant faithful marriage. This is where every, every study shows that this is where children flourish. Now, it's not to say that God doesn't bring redemption and beauty out of all kinds of various situations. I'm not downplaying other situations that are uh, unavoidable, but I am saying like everybody agrees that this is the structure that results in the highest degree of human flourishing, and this is God's design. It's also the picture that God uses to describe his desire to have humanity belong to himself and to dwell with them. And so there is a ma- another marriage between God and humanity that ends up being expressed in the bridegroom, Jesus, and the believing, faithful church bride of Christ. And so the Bible begins with a wedding and it ends with a wedding. And so this motif, the apostle Paul picks up. And I used to think like in chapter five, when he was like, this mystery is profound. I'm like, God like downloaded some super mystical thing to Paul that no one ever thought of before. I'm like, no, he just contemplated Deuteronomy probably. He just read it and went, wow, this is what God was doing. And this is what marriage is actually about. And every marriage is actually a little picture of this big marriage. And so we ought to live like this because that's what it is. Right? So it is a profound mystery. But it's actually really plain if you understand what God's been doing with marriage. So there is, there is like the core of what God says marriage is, but then that's expressed inside of a society, right? So again, we're going back to Deuteronomy. Is God building a nation for himself with a new sense of identity, with a whole legal system that shows values and priorities in a particular period of time? That has to stand in contrast to other societies, namely Egypt and the Canaanites, the Sumerians, those in Mesopotamia, those Persians we're going to be talking about, all of these uh, pagan nations who do not have Yahweh, they create, like we do today, their own ethics. Ethics based on wealth, power, position power, sexual ethics, the things that are important to them, the gods they choose to worship, and what those gods reveal to them as the levels of priorities, and cultures are built based on these religious belief systems. And it is exactly the same way. I did a series two, uh, two years ago now called Kings of the Earth from Psalm 2, where I was, we were talking about um, um, justice and equity and uh, freedom, liberty. These are like these, these American terms, but these are like biblical terms. But we, we started with religion, because everything is religious, and the, the idea that is pushed on us is that the truly uh, modern are non-religious, but it but that is not the case. And so there is religious fervor in the most atheistic, uh, evolutionary biology-driven sense uh, is very religious, all very religious. So we need to go back to go, this is a religious conversation before it is a political conversation. So this is what's going on here. God's building a nation and there's ethics built in. And there's a revelation of the nature and character of God in the way that he relates to humanity that now Israel is supposed to be putting on display to the rest of the nations. So a lot of what happens here is put to be a contrast to the other nations of the world, but it's also showing some values. And so um, this particular passage does that, right? So here we have a situation 
And in the, the CJB, the Complete Jewish Bible, actually translates the Hebrew, not seizes her, but actually uses the word rape. So I would imagine in our cultural um, environment and with our kind of like minimal sexual ethic that's largely based on consent, that makes rape one of the worst things that can happen, right? So for us, anybody that reads rape goes eh, all the way to the worst possible scenario because someone's consent has been violated and that's the highest sexual ethic. So it's a little confusing to me how that word ought to be translated. And Bill, Bill's our Hebrew scholar on staff here, so maybe he could look into it. But the, the word that's used for marriage uh, in Genesis 2, 24, 25 is cling to, hold on to, grasp. And so this picture here, I don't know if this is a, like a Hebraic exploitation of that word, or this is just a picture of saying these two have come together. So I'm not sure how much of that ought to be translated into grabbed her and forced himself upon her, or that this is just a way of describing an act that is outside of the perimeter of God's design and blessing. Yeah, it seems to me, too, that, um, you know, in that society at the time, when, when a woman lost her virginity, it's like she's used goods now and nobody wants her. Right. And so now she can't even get married, right? right. And so it, it literally takes that away from her completely. In addition to her purity, you just took away her future, yep. basically. Right. And so God's saying, look, now you're responsible for her. Forever. Forever. Yeah. And mm. all the laws about That's a right. divorce. Nope. She can cheat on you and you can do nothing. That's right. Right. Yep. Because because of yeah. what you've done, now she's yours forever. That's right. Yeah. Yep. I had a um, a man in uh, Tajikistan who, who was an Afghan man who had just become a believer. He was a Muslim and he became a believer. Uh, but he had three wives. <laughs> so so how do you deal with that situation? Now it's like, you know, be the husband of one wife. And so for from a discipleship point of view, I said, look, your first wife is your wife. Yep. These other two, you're responsible for them financially, mm-hmm. but they're not your wives anymore. Yep. You know? And so, but it's hard, right? Because it's like in that society, that's okay. Like yep. that's just normal. It's fine. No big deal. And now obviously in this society here, and it's, it's probably similar in, in Islamic culture where like, if you're not a virgin, then, you know, nobody wants you kind of thing. So, right. so that still exists. Now in our society, it's quite different, right? Yes. Like who cares, whatever. Yeah, you exactly. Know? <laughs> yeah. 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 And that, I mean, you're, you're going to notice that in these laws that virginity is this primo thing. Mm-hmm. Now, if you came out of um, like purity culture in Christianity in the 20th century, oh, yeah. virginity was also one of those things, but it had nothing to do with socioeconomics. Right. It had everything to do with like spiritual purity. Yep. And so that was a very high value, but it was a somewhat arbitrary value. Mm-hmm. And here, this is, like you said, this is directly tied to the the future of this woman in right. her household. So you're going to see a lot of these laws, too, about when a woman's husband dies, mm-hmm. what, who is, who is responsible, who's responsible for her, how, how her, the, you know, her brother-in-law is supposed to essentially give her children if she doesn't have them to progenate the, the dead man's line. So that that's come up already in the story a couple of times. But the picture here is there's a great emphasis that is placed on the continued growth of these families. Mm-hmm. And again, all of the messianic hope is that is where it lies, right. is in these families. And so, for instance, when you get to chapter 25, and I can't remember the verse numbers off the top of my head, I didn't put it in my notes, but there's that story about these two men are fighting and, and the wife of one of them jumps in and mm-hmm. she crushes the guy's testicles. And you're like, wow, yep. how, how frequently <laughs> did this happen that we right. have to have a law about it? You know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Aren't we glad for denim jeans, That's everybody? Right. Yeah. Uh, so like, these are like really strange laws. But it says you should chop off her hand. Show no mercy. You're going, wait a what? second. <laughs> like, seriously? But again, it was important to God. Like the, the line the continuing. Line, yeah, yep. she with one act is cutting off from humanity, 
a future, a whole, right. a whole tree of Seems humans. Seems severe, but not from God's yeah, perspective. Yeah, from God's perspective, yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't mess with the... No messy with the testings. That's right. <laughs> Go ahead, Bill. Yeah. There's a bumper fun, sticker. Fun following that one, right? Yeah. yeah and I just, uh, it reminds me of all the, when he describes like the things that are pure and holy, like you're not allowed to be a priest in the space if your testicles are crushed. Damaged, yeah. And same for uh, like offerings. Yep. They're like all their packaging needs to be intact. Right. <laughs> yeah. Because the fruitfulness is the way in which God is going to bring his blessing into the world. And so you get a different ethic, and it's God's perspective. And this is where the fear of the Lord comes to serve us. When we don't come to the scriptures by saying, how, what is this, how does this make me feel? What do I think that it means based on the things that I know? But we put all that aside and we go, God, how can I know you deeper? How can I know you truer? What does this look like from your angle? We, we, we spend a lot of time in our culture, too, talking about like walking in each other's shoes and seeing things from each other's perspectives. And there's a lot of emphasis that's put on being open-minded, but we tend to be very close-minded and judgmental towards God, especially as we open the scriptures. We see one thing that seems foreign to us and we go, that's weird. I'm not interested in that. Or I'm offended by that. And that's just silly uh, because God's the one who made all this and he's the one who revealed all this. And at, at the very least, we're missing out on something really beautiful and important that God wants to communicate to us. And so in this passage, you're given this scenario it says, if a man meets a virgin who is not betrothed. So this is a young girl um, who's not been with a man. And so she has her future ahead of her, essentially. And she's there is no uh, arrangement between her and, and her father and another man who's agreed to a bride price after a period of time based on her age and all those sorts of things. So whether he forces himself upon her or, as Exodus 22 talks about, seduces her into a relationship. And again, that's where these words are really important. And this is true... I don't know how like uh, we're we're gonna like jump out of PG thirteen here, but in my pastoral experience, um, Tiffany, I've encountered uh, women who have essentially been raped, but they don't know they have been raped because they were brought into a process against their will in such small increments that they thought they were doing something that they wanted to do, and they were so psychologically manipulated they could not draw a clean line. And so when we say the word rape, we imagine some dude in a ski mask grabbing a woman in the parking lot of her apartment and dragging her into the woods. But 99.9% of the time, that is not how that takes place. And so when the way that it takes place is somebody who's in an intimate relationship with you, pushing you to do something you're uncomfortable with, creating an environment where that can happen and bringing you to the very edge of your own ability to draw a line. And so this is, again, a, a law that's speaking to position power. Because, that, again, and this is true in our culture, there is great um, impact on a woman in a sexually uh, immoral relationship, and there is very, very little on a man. And this is where the abortion issue comes up so frequently, is because men can be immoral all they want, and they aren't left with the responsibility of a human child that this woman is going to bear and deliver and carry and own for the rest of her life. And so in that sense the future of this woman is also on display for us in this law to say God's trying to protect the women. This is a law to protecting women who have relatively less position power and who in this environment where something has been done to her that she may, it may have been a fighting scream. And, and you're going to get that in Exodus too. If they're in the city, she had a chance to scream and she didn't. If they're in a field and she could have screamed and no one would have heard her. And so based on the location of where this took place, the woman is either vindicated or condemned, right? And so like these things are speaking to who is really in control here. And so like we really got to slow down 
and not just go, oh, the Bible says that if a man rapes a woman, then he has to marry her and she has to live as the wife of her rapist. That is not what this passage is about at all. This is about a sexual ethic that all of us know how this goes, where lines get crossed and relationships that ought to be intact and this is God honoring and this is what God's purpose is and this is where the highest degree of God's ethic is expressed and that is not what happens. And so when there is a less than environment, let's talk about what the value system ought to be. And the value system is, listen, buddy, if you're going to push her without any respect for her, her future, her family, public honor, and then you're, this is what's going to happen and you're found out about it, she's yours forever. Now, this is obviously going to deter the, the male of the species into recognizing, like, if, if I fool around, there's consequences for me based on this law. Do you see that? And so we can't let words like seized or rape immediately create an uh, a, a environment or a situation in our minds that's not actually in keeping with what was going on in the text. Does that make sense? Yep. God's not saying rape's okay. No, not <laughs> at all. Uh, the opposite. He's or, saying yeah. there's consequences. Yeah, if you yep. can catch her, you can keep her. Right, no. <laughs> that is not how we're supposed to re- no. read no. this at all. Yep. Oh, uh, all right, just to comment on those Hebrew words that you had questions yes. on already. The um, the first guy, when, he, when he's strong, it's the word chazak, yep. which is, is just to be in strength, to like be strong about it. And then the other one they use for to lie with this girl is not the word yada, which is our uh, intimate word that we get with God, where you know your wife that way, you mm-hmm. know God that way. Uh, it's uh, shakav, which is to lie with, you know, or to lie down, like in your bed. It's the same kind of idiom. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like, it's not a, a love thing. It's not a it's love. Like a, or a God love thing. thing. Yeah. 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 It's the, the other thing. And the other thing I was, I was just so, the only thing that keeps coming to my brain over and over again is, you know, the, when you were married, your, or the, the wife's parents kept your sheets your so that when you know when you had they were like oh this girl wasn't a virgin and then what would happen if you couldn't produce the, sti- the sheets yeah she got stoned like purge the evil yeah and so it's just like you this know big stuff protect it like hey guys you might want to slow down on that half and then there's also like the protecting like we mentioned before of the women like that are in this situation because like we said before like the used goods things it's like a you know that you either die or you die because you got married and you weren't a virgin so right. yeah it's a big deal. Yeah. And it's important to see it in its cultural setting. And then I think it's important that we actually allow this to influence the way that we think. Because there's a lot of, like, libertarianism that has really infiltrated American Christianity. Like, a lot of people would look at any laws that have anything to say about a sexual ethic as, like, too intrusive. Like, stay out of my business. What happens in my bedroom is between me and whoever's in there. And it's foolhardy to, to think that you can have a functioning society that has no sexual ethic built into it. And in fact, what happens is when you step back to say, let's have no rules, a new set of rules is created and it's highly exploitative. And so we've got to actually come back to God's center ethic and really consider what laws ought to be in place and the impacts they're going to have, not just on who's going to suffer as a result of them, which is always the appeal on the left is to go, a law like this would disproportionately make this category of people suffer. But all of that argumentation completely moves away from personal autonomy and responsibility and choice and into this whole concept of where do you fall in the social order. And this is essentially just a neo-Marxist way of dissolving all um, law and restraint and throwing it into a sense of chaos, which is not an end in and of itself. And so a lot of times the proposed freedom is actually 
a terrible, terrible future and vision of the future. And so for Christians, especially as you're thinking about like, should there be laws that dictate a sexual ethic? Well, there, sure, there certainly should be a moral fabric that does that. And if what what's going to protect keep that happening if there aren't laws that actually create guidelines for what is actually right and good? Yeah, you know, in uh, <clears throat> in Afghanistan, a lot of people thought that you know we can bring Western democracy to Afghanistan, and what they don't realize is that in the culture, the very the very core of people's beings there, you know, it's Islam, and in Islam, it's lying and cheating and and even stealing to get your way are are considered kind of godly traits, right? And right. so, so when that's a part of your core belief. You can't have you can't have integrity, right? You can't have normal like f- laws Contract that, that give law. freedom. You can't. We have laws that give freedom. Even like right. what they they actually do not function well if there is not a dictator who is strong arming them. Right. And it's because of their core their core beliefs, right? And so when someone becomes a believer, like when when the United States was founded, right? We it was founded by mostly believers who right. had God's laws written on their hearts, right? And so we're a, a self governed society. That doesn't work if you're not a self governed society. It just doesn't work. And so you have to have more and more and more restrictive laws in order to maintain a peaceful society. Yeah. And that's, that's what, that's essentially, it's funny because there's a, there is a big call against anything that appears to be fascistic in the sense of laws applied to everyone, regardless of demographic. And that's called fascism. Instead, they're saying there should be no laws. Everyone should be able to do what they want. And then inside of this environment of chaos, let's hand the government all the power, which is actual fascism. Right. By, by the de- definition yep. is how fascism happens. And so it's, it's, this, it's this weird, like, look over here while I smack you in the face. So we've got to really, I'm not saying that we should, like a lot of people who are like fundamentalists would go, well, you just need to take the, take the Old Testament law and just make that the law. You know what I mean? We'll just stone the adulterers and we'll... Everybody. Like, no, no, this is... You have to have some nuance here. This is not Old Testament Israel. This is not... This is... We are in a different world. And even just in a theological sense, we are in a post-Christ world. So we actually have a fuller picture of the heart of God, a fuller picture of God's morality, a fuller picture of God's order, a fuller picture... This is why my podcast that's going to be talking about political things is going to be called The Monarchist Cookbook, as opposed to The Anarchist Cookbook. <laughs> because we really are building a kingdom under the leadership of a king. And there's nothing wrong with a king. As Americans, you know, we don't like the idea of monarchy. But like when you have a king as selfless and powerful as Jesus, as wise, like this is the, the height of Israel's flourishing was under Solomon, who was the closest to the messianic king that the earth has ever seen. And so now we're in this kingdom age where we can live our lives in whatever governments and whatever cultures, whatever societies we are, as unto the king. And that is really where the kingdom of heaven begins to expand. Because what we were made for was this kind of life. What people find divinely attractive is this kind of life. I don't know anybody who says, there should be no moral laws, no sexual ethic at all who wants to be cheated on. Right. You know what I mean? It goes against the very intuitive nature of a humanity. Like we, we want to be cherished by one person and loved our whole life and have the security that comes along with that fidelity. But we don't want anybody to tell us we have to do that. Yep. Do you understand the inconsistency here? Anyway, these are very fascinating conversations. Deuteronomy ends with uh, a call. I have presented before you life and death. Moses' passionate plea is choose life. But we go into this next uh, phase of the history of Israel, out of the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, and under the leadership of Joshua into this conquest. Joshua is a fascinating read. You're going to love it. I actually reread the whole entire thing yesterday morning all the way straight through, and it's a very easy read especially if you skim past the names of the people and the places that are 
given to the people. Those do matter and we'll get into those, but because it won't matter how slowly you read them, they will not make sense to you. Um, unless someone explains to you why they're significant, skim through those. You could read the whole thing in about 45 minutes. It's a, it's a phenomenal read and it's probably one of the brightest spots of, uh, God's story so far. And you should have a bright spot because we're going into judges next week and it gets real dark. (laughs) So, but we end Deuteronomy, um, with these themes of the God's after our heart. Here's what God looks like. Here's what his nation's supposed to look like. Here's how it's supposed to function. There's this missional component of, and this is supposed to be a nation shining bright to its, to, uh, the nations of the world. Everyone should come to, to Israel and see it flourishing and want to copy what it's doing and know it's God. So like, there's, there's all of this like potential, uh, beauty and the choice is given. And this is how Deuteronomy should function in our lives. We should read it and see God and know that God wants our heart hear the call to love him and listen to him and choose the life that he's given. And every single opportunity we have to open a door that leads to life or open a door that leads to death, we should activate our faith in Jesus and walk through that door that leads to life. Amen. And so, but Deuteronomy ends with all of these unanswered questions. Who is the deliverer? Is it Joshua? Where's the seed of the woman? What about those prophecies in Genesis 49? How's God going to rescue the whole world? Where's the blessing to all the nations going to come from? He just told us to kill everybody. (laughs) When's everyone going to get blessed, and how does that work itself out? How is God going to reconcile himself to this hard-hearted nation that keeps saying the right thing and doing the wrong thing? Sound familiar? And then how will God ultimately circumcise the hearts of his people? When will that occur, and what will that look like? These are the questions that you're meant to carry into Joshua and Judges, into the prophets that ultimately are are revealed in Jesus. So thanks for joining with us um, on this deep dive into Deuteronomy. It's been a pleasure having you guys join us, Jonathan and Tina. Yeah, thank Bill. you. It's been thank really you guys fun. so much for being here. <laughs> um, and um, we'll, uh, we'll look forward to seeing how God moves in the hearts of our Christchurch family to, to help out Ozad and his family. Amen. <laughs> All right, we'll see you next week. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.